as market thinkers series. This whole series is dedicated to investment themes. We'll be focusing our discussions on some of the most uh, important technological, demographic or societal trends that are occurring around the world. We're speaking to experts or experts in each sector, spanning financial markets and the broader industry as we seek to understand these emerging trends or themes more. Investing in global themes over the last 30 years has really paid off um, for investors. Every month when Drew and I run our investment committee meetings, we have a list of themes that we want to, or we're trying to obtain exposure for our clients. This week's session, we'll be covering uh, the, the most interesting topic on our agenda, cryptocurrency and blockchain. Joining us is Hendrik, from Apollo Capital and Michael Armitage from FunLab. FunLab is a consultant to Apollo, helping investors understand where Hendrik or Apollo's uh, cryptocurrency fund fits in with their portfolio. Welcome, Hendrik. Welcome, Michael. Welcome, Drew. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you for having us. No problem. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past few months, you would know that cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin, has been growing in popularity from traders and professional investors. But cryptocurrency is more than just Bitcoin and potentially represents a whole new view to the world of traditional finance. The top two currencies alone now represent over a trillion dollars in market cap. Such a new field, um, very, very uh, new. What kind of backgrounds do you two guys have to, to make you an expert in cryptocurrency? Maybe we'll start with you first, Hendrik. Yeah, sure. So uh, my background is in traditional finance. Uh, I have a quite technical background. I worked as a quant analyst, which is financial mathematics at the derivatives desk at an uh, investment bank in my home country of, of Sweden. Uh, I've also been uh, on the buy side of a, of a quant hedge fund based in Singapore. And I spent some 10 years uh, on Wall Street on the institutional equity sales side. So most of my career before I entered crypto was in, in traditional finance, sort of in, in the stock market and in uh, both in technical buy side, sell side. Yep. So running money, essentially you've run portfolios most of your life by the sense of it. When did you first see crypto? When, when was your first experience, the first day that you fell in love with this uh, <laughs> new currency? I was around eight years ago where Bitcoin in 2013 uh, moved from around... Uh, $100 in the beginning of the year or mid-year mid to over $1,000 at the end of 2013. That was, uh, it was one of the first uh, big waves uh, in the crypto markets and uh, that caught my interest and I started learning more about uh, Bitcoin, the under techno underlying technology, blockchain technology and, and really fascinated me. I think uh, coming from that combination of a quite technical background uh, with financial markets, uh, I think that's the perfect combination to get into uh, to crypto. And then later Ethereum was launched, which was the next big innovation after Bitcoin. So then the 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 pace of innovation in the in the field really heated up. Is it common for people involved in kind of we'll call it digital currency or digital assets come from a finance background or tech or a bit of both or just anywhere? <laughs> Uh, you look, I think it's changed over the years. I think in the early beginnings, uh, Bitcoin got started 12 years ago. And at that point, there was a very small group of people, mostly 
kind of a fringe group of libertarians in, in the States that were interested in, in Bitcoin and crypto. And then sort of it moved more to cryptographers, uh, people uh, interested in, in that kind of very technical field. And then I think from there on, it moved to uh, more finance finance people and capital markets people. And, and today I think it's it's much more broad and, and you even have you know adoption from not only retail investors, but also big corporations and, uh, and traditional fund managers. Great. And you, Michael, what's your background? My back, background is primarily within uh, derivatives, derivative trading. For the first 20 years of my career, I spent uh, really in derivative trading and working within hedge funds. Uh, my, I guess, evolution or my uh, downshifting as I moved to Australia in 2010 has been more focused around consulting. Um, but primarily always around portfolio construction and um, you know, portfolio management or risk management. The main thing about crypto that grabbed my attention um, as you get under, uh, underneath the hood is you know, un the understanding or, or maybe the, the outlook that the technology is just much more bigger than what the surface story really is around you know, price activity. Sure. Um, but for me, it being an options trader, it really represents one of the biggest convex trades that's that's available, uh, in my opinion, in terms of you know potential upside versus what the maximum downside uh, would be. Uh, so from that context, if uh, you know, that that that's led me, um, you know, to really look at a, a wide set of managers. But luckily in Australia, here you've got somebody like Henrik who's uh, been in this space for a long time and quite successful. Is that a kind of a good place to start stepping back and going, is cryptocurrency the right word for for the asset class? Is it digital assets? Does it confuse people? You know, everyone will talk about the volatility in different currencies, but is that the way we should be looking at it? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think when we, when we talk about currencies, people immediately think about that medium of exchange. But I mm, think yeah. the crypto space is so much wider than that. So we, we like to call them crypto assets or digital assets uh, because there are a lot of other functionalities than just uh, medium of exchange. And medium of exchange is probably not the best use case for many of the crypto assets out there. There's something called stable coins, which we think is, is, is suitable for that medium of exchange, but Bitcoin, and I'm sure we'll get in more into this, is, is more like a store of value and other crypto assets have, have different functions. So we think the space is, is, is bigger than, than the currency use case, if you like. Is it worth yeah, staying there and, and looking at um, Bitcoin and why it was created originally? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, does that, does that were, give context to the sector, or is that too specific about Bitcoin? Um, uh, I mean, B Bitcoin is still the biggest asset, so it, it makes sense. And that's where it all started, right? Uh, but I think in the decades before Bitcoin was created in, in 2000, first proposed in 2008 and then launched in 2009, I think in the decades before that, uh, there were some people who tried to create digital currencies, if you like. Um, um, but uh, they were all centralized and they, you know, they were prone to manipulation and, and they could be shut down. But uh, Bitcoin really created uh, something that was decentralized. Um, so that was one of the big innovations with, with Bitcoin. And um, the purpose was to create something that was independent from, say, governments, from politicians, from central banks. And that's 
really what we have with, with Bitcoin. So that was a very important uh, innovation. It's also uh, a scarce asset with a fixed supply, which was, was, was very important and still is. Um, so those are some of the interesting characteristics with, with Bitcoin, which is currently mostly seen as a, a digital store of value, as a potential store of value, we should say, because it's still very volatile, um, but, but potentially a, a gold 2.0, if you like. And is the, the value in the, is it the trans, fully transparent? Is that kind of the, the concept or fully traceable? The, yeah, it... so the, the blockchain itself is, is fully transparent. Anyone can verify everything that is happening on the blockchain, uh, which means that you don't have to trust one entity and not to print more of it or something like that because uh, it's all in, in the software and, and anyone can verify how many Bitcoins are outstanding, uh, how many more Bitcoins will be, be minted, and there's a hard cap on the on the supply of Bitcoins. So that's a very important concept, that openness and transparency, if you like. So it's a big change to something like at the moment, if we want to transfer for an investment in the US, we have to use an intermediate or one bank that then uses two other banks just to get cash to arrive. Mm. Um, That's right. So it's But it's also that, uh, that, that scarcity, uh, meaning we can trust that uh, no one else will print more of it. And, and I think that's why you have seen some much interest in Bitcoin specifically lately, because we have seen all this uh, central bank easing uh, and money printing going around in the world, especially since COVID, uh, COVID started. And I think there are a lot of investors these days that uh, believe that we will see a lot of inflation uh, in the coming years. Uh, and um, Bitcoin is potentially a hedge for that. So if we were saying this is a big theme, Henrik and Michael, and said, well, if I got you to... Um dream and say in 15 years time and this has continued on this rapid rise of being used in not just for currency but day-to-day -day life what's the opportunity set in this um in in having digital assets can you see it being used for you know all means of transactions like um and and, and stamping of ownership um could it be used for, I saw the ASX recently is going to use their, their new registry system is going to use some form of blockchain. Michael, do you want to take that one? Yeah, so I think- I You think, don't have to be right. It's just, yeah, no. it's just kind of saying, well, it's been so rapid. Yeah. Where could it go? Is it, is it, could it actually transform everything we do? Not saying that that's going to create a huge amount of money, but you know, transaction. Zoom, for example, Zoom 12 months ago, we didn't use and now we use it every day. Yeah, look, I think, you know, to kind of talk in a bit of a, a bigger picture um, analogy is um, a world moving to digital from analog, right? So that's what blockchain promises. And sure, there'll be a lot of efficiency gain across many industries and many things. Now, blockchain and crypto or blockchain and Bitcoin, you know, the maximalists will say, yeah, well, the only true real strong security blockchain uh, is one that's tied to Bitcoin, right? There's that incentive structure of a consensus that's making sure that that blockchain doesn't get somehow corrupted, right? Not every blockchain probably needs that kind of security, right? But many will, and many, and, and many others will find some other, you know, so there are other blockchains or other base layers, and, and Henry can probably talk in more detail to these, um, that have features that are better than Bitcoin for their use case. 
So for example, in Bitcoin right now, you know, there's the, I guess the time that takes for a block to get, you know, um, uh, verified is much longer than say on Ethereum. And so thus there's some efficiency pickup, you know, for different use cases on different, uh, I guess, base layer technology. Um, but most importantly, I think from a bigger picture standpoint is that, yeah, there's a lot of use cases that will make the world completely different and much more efficient. And probably some of the lowest hanging fruit are in some of the most inefficient industries out there and the ones that have a lot of cost and middlemen. And probably the biggest one is the financial industry. Right? Mm. So anything from, you know, either, you know, portfolio management, administration services, going through brokers, exchanges, bid-ask spreads, times for settlement, all custody. those things can be custody. All those things could be improved. Other things too, you know, there's a big swell in terms of ESG. You know, blockchain technology, uh, you know, was on a, a call recently where, you know, carbon credits, right? So the focus around, uh, you know, carbon. So that idea of having some kind of carbon credit that's verifiable, that can't be double counted, is a perfect use case for some kind of blockchain that's highly secure and you know, consensus driven and uh, you know, not to be able to be corrupted. So that makes a very good use case for having something that would have some kind of digital asset attached or, or cryptocurrency that is the incentive to make sure that there's security around that blockchain. Hmm. So. so when you say it can't be corrupted, is it just because it hasn't been corrupted yet or is it totally foolproof? Oh, well, I mean, Henry could probably talk more in detail, but I've, you know, I've watched like the MIT um, uh, seminars on Bitcoin specifically. And, you know, I guess the, the word that they use is uh, highly infeasible, right? I mean, it's not, it's not impossible to be corrupted, but the, you know, the probabilities are like so in, in, <laughs> so small that they say it's, it's unfeasible that it'll ever be you know, kind yeah, of broken. Yeah. And the way that that's the beauty of the way that design was. Now that blockchain currently could be argued to be the most secure, right? And by design, as the price increases, the incentive is to keep on building security around, around uh, that blockchain. Hmm. Um, other blockchains are maybe not as secure, but they have more use case to be able to be, you know, uh, quicker or faster or cheaper to to operate on. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, you're going to see new developments and things will there'll be trade there's always trade-offs in terms of all different characteristics that you want for a particular chain maybe henry could expand on some of the use cases so everyone sure. thinks you know it says currency as we put in our notes beforehand currency is not the right word necessarily and every kind of every asset or every coin can be used for a different purpose they don't want to be used to buy pizza or whatever it happens to be mm -hmm. uh, have you got a couple so, yeah. of examples that that uh listeners might like yeah for, for, for sure i mean i just want to get back first to that uh, corruptible piece there and i think you know the bitcoin blockchain is certainly very very secure and, and and it's kind of been running 
very securely for for 12 years now and ethereum is uh, is a secure blockchain as well but i think the key here is that we can all verify if it's been corrupted or not so it's all kind of open uh, open to the world and anyone can for example run a, a bitcoin node on your laptop and, and you can all verify all the transactions going back to the very first transaction in general 2009 uh, on, on your on your laptop and and uh, it will take a couple of days to verify all the transactions that are taking place from that but there are thousands and thousands of these nodes running and anyone, anyone can kind of check that integrity of the system It'd probably so take years really, for a bank to do that wouldn't it <laughs> to verify yeah it's, it's not transparent <laughs> right i cannot check the um, kind of verify <laughs> The, the transactions going on uh, on uh, on a private ledger uh, in, in some of the banks or something like that, right? Um, so that's a very kind of a paradigm shift when it comes to financial infrastructure. And there is one kind of uh, bigger potential here, which is uh, the actual building of a new financial infrastructure using blockchain technology. Uh, so with the introduction of Ethereum, which was the next big innovation after Bitcoin, we got something called smart contracts, which are snippets of code that run on the Ethereum world computer, which is the Ethereum blockchain. And that enables us to create financial contracts uh, that are uh, coded. So it's basically um, replacing financial institutions, um, banks, if you like, uh, with software and a very specific software in this case, which is blockchain technology. This can only be done with blockchain technology. So this could really be, I think if you look out five, 10 years, this could be a paradigm shift when it comes to the introduction of a new financial infrastructure, um, basically running on the rails of blockchain. One simple application as an example is stable coins. So with stable coins, you have crypto assets that are pegged to, for example, the US dollar or the Australian dollar and you can run them on, on the Ethereum blockchain, which means that they're super fast. You can send these stable coins to anyone in the world immediately. You can know that they arrived uh, and you don't have to uh, rely on a bank uh, to Western do Union transactions, or right? Um, so that's a very simple, kind of the most simple application of this new financial paradigm that we call decentralized finance or DeFi. And then you can do more complicated things as well. So we've seen a lot of uptake in the use of um, DeFi when it comes to lending, borrowing, uh, trading, um, derivatives. Uh, and that's happening right now. We have seen that kind of market expand by 50 times. So 5,000% in, in the last 12 months. And um, a lot of the top VCs in the world that are investing in this space, they are heavily focused on that DeFi or decentralized finance market currently. Yeah, I think I think a good analogy there uh, is, you know, the difference between fintech and DeFi, right? So we recently had a educational seminar where someone had made the comment that, you know, fintech are applications that are working around like the current traditional legacy banking system. You know, yep. a, a centralized, still working around all the problems of legacy systems and centralized ledgers and not an open architecture where DeFi is kind of FinTech on steroids because it's working in an open architecture. 
So that makes the user interface easier where you're basically breaking it all down. In terms of the speed of overcoming any hurdle, right? Or any innovation is now wide open. And that's why you're seeing this exponential growth in terms of, you know, applications being, being made. Um, you know, the other, the other analogy is it's, it's VC, but it's liquid VC. You know, that entire category of, of projects that are going on. I, I think that's a really good, uh, good, good point there, Michael. The, the first point you made there with the open innovation. Um, I think for the first time in human history, we see financial in innovation on a, on a global scales, scale, thanks to DeFi. Um, so if you look at FinTech, it's using the kind of the old banking rails, but maybe they do uh, mobile only or something like that. It's another interface to their old financial rails. This is a completely new financial infrastructure that is based on software. And since it's software-based, there is kind of a permissionless innovation going on. So anyone anywhere in the world can write these smart contracts, publish it to, to the world, and anyway can, anyone can start using them uh, kind of in a permissionless way. So that has spurred this kind of explosion in innovation around DeFi. So would smart contracts have you know applications in property settlements and these sort of things where I'm, I'm assuming it's basically if this happens, this this automatically happens. So you meet certain requirements and then the contract's met and and your currency or your money is distributed. Am I the old world? <laughs> There's certainly a lot of people that are trying to apply this technology to all kind of, of, of things like property settlement, settlements, supply chains and other things, right? It becomes quite difficult Kind of to secure something on a blockchain that is not digital, right? Because the only thing you can enforce on a on a blockchain is is something that is natively digital. And real estate mm. is a physical thing, so that you cannot secure something that is physical on on a digital blockchain, right? It would be impossible, right? So, Bitcoin is purely digital. Uh, it's different in that way from gold, right? Because gold is something physical, right? So you can only secure something on the blockchain that is uh, purely uh, purely digital. That's why we, you know, one reasons why financial contracts are so well suited to blockchain technology. So at Apollo, we focused a lot on investing in the DeFi space. We even, you know, uh, wrote our investment thesis uh, around our investment uh, philosophy before DeFi was a, was, was, was a word, right? But we had all this time focused on, on financial applications because they are most of the time digital in nature, uh, they are well-defined um, and they're very well suited to smart contracts. If you talk about real estate, it's kind of something in the real world which, which is really difficult, to, I think, to kind of apply this to. So we, we've, we've thought about that. If we were to apply um, the opportunity uh, for crypto into a business like House. Drew and I are financial planners. We run model partners. Um, we're in financial services. So do you think crypto or blockchain would have in some of the activities we do, um, for example, undertaking due diligence in, on investments? Um, maybe, maybe not. Share um, trading, bank transfers. Definitely determining ownership. That would That's quite clear and it seems to be progressing. Settling trades. Kind of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean, some of those areas when it comes to kind of the more more, more financial areas, kind of sending funds, right? Uh, you know, uh, there are some of the big payment companies that are now working to integrate with stable coins. So 
that might be what what is underlying some of the transfers that that you will do in the coming years yep so it could be big payment companies also mastercard visa are looking to kind of integrate stable coins so it's big you know people might not even know that they're using blockchain technology um yep. uh, when they new, use those kind of services when it comes to share share trading you know there is a kind of a parallel financial world that that is being built up using blockchain technology uh, and it's, it's possible that you know we could uh, trade shares uh, and other instruments using uh, using something like ethereum um, as kind of the base layer so it's definitely possible and and if that were to happen a lot of the middlemen that 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 you have today in that area when it comes to exchanges, et cetera, might be disrupted. Yeah, and there's a, a lot of talk at the moment about regulation of the of the industry. It does, from what we're discussing, it sounds like it's almost self-regulating. <laughs> you know, if everything's transparent, you can tell when it's corrupt. Is there, is, do you seem to be ahead of everyone on in terms of your understanding of, of, the, uh, of the sector? Um, is, reg- is regulation coming? What does it even look like? Um, is it a regulatable uh, asset? Um, I, I, I mean, it's, it's certain parts of the industry is definitely regulated today, right? So, for example, when it comes to the crypto exchanges, they own an off ramps to crypto. They are regulated in Australia. They have been that for, for a couple of years now. Yeah. Same thing in, in other regions of the world, right? So the US and Europe, et cetera. Um, will there be more re- regulation coming? Yeah, that, I think that's possible. There are, you know, perhaps some regulation uh, underway, for example, in the, in, in the States uh, where, where they might require more, more kind of uh, know your customer checks and things like that from, from exchanges when they send funds from, from the exchange or, or, or crypto. Um, would that be bad for industry? Not necessarily. I think, especially since we are seeing this institutional adoption now, um, for many institutions looking at the space, they might actually welcome more regulation coming to the industry. And do you see more opportunity? I know your history and your uh, experiences in the currency part. Is is the DeFi part more where more of the scale is over the next decade? That's certainly an area where we think we'll see most of the growth. So while we are bullish on Bitcoin and, and, and we think there's a lot of upside still in, in Bitcoin, if you compare Bitcoin to, for example, gold, there's still a long way to go. Uh, but but we see b- bigger growth kind of in, in that DeFi area. And we think that's for the next five years, that's where we will continue to invest heavily in. Uh, so, you know, we run a diversified portfolio. We have Bitcoin, um, but but apart from Bitcoin, I think DeFi is where uh, where most of the growth will come from. That's <laughs> a dog. dog. <laughs> Maybe we'll cut that out. <laughs> Louis, stop. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Mine, mine was just crying. I just let him out. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe we'll, we'll talk about your fun in a second, Hendrik, since we're going to cut this out. Um, Louis, stop. Fuck. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Um, so let's let's talk about where it fits in portfolios, and then we can talk about where where your fund fits, right? So, um, so we'll start again. Dog will walk past. Sit down. <laughs> Three, two, one. 
So it seems like Bitcoin is gathering momentum and getting access to it is becoming easier and easier. As advisors, we've been asked about the um, the asset class and getting exposure for to it for, for a long time. I hear there's about to be some ETFs listed in the US and potentially in Australia that allows uh, stock investors to invest into Bitcoin. Um, so it seems like that momentum will continue. Where does it fit in portfolios, Michael? Can you give us some context around where, say, a retiree um, would put Bitcoin? Would he? Would they buy a coin, or would they buy the new ETF? Or Hendrik will, will allow Hendrik to explain his fund. Um, can you can you can you just give us some perspective in terms of portfolio builds and where potentially an asset like this fits? Sure. I think that, you know, I think one, it's first, uh, you know, it's important to kind of distinguish between uh, maybe Bitcoin and the broader uh, asset class, right? Bitcoin being, if anything, and it's almost funny, is being almost becoming the mature, boring uh, asset in the class, if you will, right? Um, but I think, you know, the, the theme right now is this store of value or digital gold from that standpoint, it's, it's viewed currently um, as you know, more of a either a cash holding or a hedge for inflation, um, albeit one that's you know, very highly volatile um, relative to traditional assets. Um, I'm still in the camp that I think that it's, it's, it's correlating quite highly with technology, right? with mm. high growth technology um, stocks. But probably does have that other use case as well. And I think over time as volatility continues to, to diminish uh, in, uh, of Bitcoin, um, the store of value story will become more embedded, if you will. Um, where we've seen it being used, uh, where I've seen it being used, um, yes, certainly people with that more growth story, they recognize the technology and the technology of blockchain is here to stay. And then if anything, it's, it's a very big high growth story. Yeah. Uh, other institutions have looked at it as, yeah, is it a levered kind of gold uh, allocation? And so do I, if, I, if I'm managing a, a currency bucket, do I have that part of that bucket, you know, at a very small percentage of holding based on the volatility? Um, so it's a good question because you could argue that in your defensive alts, in your defensive bucket, you have currency and some commodities like gold. So it kind of fits there. But then the vol is quite high at the moment. Might not always be like that, but the vol at the moment's high. So you'd, you'd automatically need to allocate it to kind of your growth alts down the bottom and where you put your portfolio hedges. So, you know, it kind of fits two it's places. It's truly diversified, right? Over long time periods, it's not really correlating with anything. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't have it in the portfolio, for example, as an equity hedge. Because yeah. it still has that high correlation with a liquidity event or a risk off environment that, you know, for example, in March, uh, you know, it came off quite heavily as did, you know, the equity markets. Now that might be very different on the next move, um, uh, but, you know, but it seems I, like the correlations change too, doesn't it? Over time, they've moved in and out of various asset classes. So 
as you said, it's unhedged, uh, uncorrelated, which is fine. It's a good portfolio hedge here. Right. And so from, if I look at it a, a bit broader, if we start to look at DeFi and some other digital assets that are higher risk, higher return, um, I view them more as much more kind of tech VC kind of allocations where they're much earlier in terms of their S curve than say Bitcoin. And so you don't need to hold as much as them in a portfolio, um, or if you're if you're holding a you know in, in the case of a crypto fund like Henrik, they can make up you know a smaller portion of the portfolio, uh, um, you know because of the higher risk they they still deliver a much higher expected rate of return. Um, so I wouldn't classify them all the same, mm-hmm. um, and certainly they all have um, you know I guess different maturities, different volatilities. Um, I think that, that kind of drives the underlying thing of how do you get access to this um, beyond Bitcoin and a Bitcoin ETF, I think will be valuable for people. You know, if it's, a, if it's an easy access point or a small allocation into a portfolio, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but for, you know, people who want to have maybe where Bitcoin's return series of 10,000%, you know, kind of uh, for the last... Uh, whatever length of period it is, you're probably not going to get that in Bitcoin going forward. But these other assets, you know, these new projects and these new opportunities, that growth rate is still there, but the risk is, you know, directly associated with that as well. Sorry, go ahead. So a portfolio of crypto assets managed by an active manager who's really looking at the token economics of each of these deals and what their use case and what their qualities are um, is absolutely critical if you want to be investing in this asset class. And why, why is volatility so high? Is that just the nature of supply and, you know, supply and demand, obviously, but it's, there's limited supply. Is that, is that what drives a daily volatility and there's more and more players entering it and exiting it? Is that, yeah, I think it's, it's still a relatively small asset class and it's still primarily driven by sentiment. Right? Yeah. So, you know, that, that's, that's part and parcel of, you know, a very illiquid asset, a relatively illiquid asset class. Um, I think the other thing is it's daily priced VC in many ways. If you're, if, I don't know if you've been in any VC funds, but if they were daily priced, they'd be volatile as hell. If residential property was, it would be too. So that's a trade-off. You know, you've got daily liquidity, but you're going to have to wear volatility certainly here in this brand mm. class at the you know at the onset. It's interesting because it's somewhere between a public market asset and a private market asset. Because I assume something that Henrik and Apollo and you guys are kind of selling in a way is access to a diversified portfolio that still has a very unique knowledge to it versus you know, public markets where knowledge is available on a Bloomberg terminal for a subscription fee. So um, so just to, I mean, for, for anyone that's listening, Drew and I, you know, essentially anyone that's been interested in, in, in crypto, we've, we've suggested uh, Apollo um, because it is a, a broad fund. It is exposed to a lot of um, different currencies and Hendrik is, been, you know, uh, one of the most experienced managers in this space, not saying that the fund isn't without risk um, or isn't um, isn't volatile, but, you know, our, our 
declaring our hand is that we've we've um, sent people your way because of that. You know, it fits in that growth uh, alt bucket down the back, down the bottom. It's a diversified portfolio of different things. We liked that um, there's some custody. Um, you've got a professional custody group owning some of these coins, not not all of them, but owning owning some of them. We've all heard stories before about you know someone with a hard drive of six million dollars worth of crypto that they threw into a <laughs> local bin that they can't get back so you know there's elements that you're doing is really interesting and you know we've been a, a supporter um it's just uh it grows every day and the knowledge that you need grows every day and we don't have time and so it's one of those areas that we we would rather use a professional manager than trying to pick another coin even though clients call us every day and tell us um about a new coin that's you know securitized by tvs or something um but uh uh yeah i mean that's where it fits we think it fits in portfolios and how we kind of approach it so do you want to give us a bit more color about your fund hendrick how many uh coins are in there um and is your biggest holding bitcoin and then it scales down yeah, that's right. So, so Bitcoin is certainly one of the biggest holders and, and Ethereum is in there as well at the top. Apart from that, we have, as I said a couple of times, a lot of focus on, on DeFi assets. I think what you said, Jamie, is, is really right. So it's really correct. So it's a very inefficient market. So if you're a professional manager in the crypto market, there is, there is great alpha to be had, if, if you like. There are great opportunities for, for returns that are outside outsized returns versus the market. So I think, you know, going back to the discussion we had about Bitcoin and other crypto assets out there, I think if you if you only buy one, one crypto, sure, you can buy Bitcoin, right? And then you have to custody that somehow. Um, there is no ETF currently. But my opinion is that you know, the space is bigger than just Bitcoin. I don't see a future where there is only Bitcoin. Uh, it's mm. definitely much, much bigger uh, than just Bitcoin. And uh, as like Michael said before, uh, the growth is much higher in some of the other areas uh, of the market, even, even though we are still positive about uh, Bitcoin. Uh, so if you like that more diversified exposure to the crypto ecosystem, if you like, uh, across the crypto space, then um, then you need a broad broad portfolio. And 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 what does not work is a passive holding of say the top ten or t- top twenty crypto assets out there. Um, th- that has proven itself to be very inefficient and kind of underperforming. Uh, yes. So you need to have an active allocation, meaning an active manager in the space if you need a broad if you want that broad exposure. And I think that's where we come in. Uh, so we, we provide that with, with Apollo Capital. We have an actively managed, uh, diversified portfolio to the crypto ecosystem. And what's the index that we should be looking at to kind of get an idea of how crypto markets, uh, is there an index that you, know, you can follow and plot? Uh, you know, there are a few, few, few indices. We, we, uh, we like to, uh, we've been using since we started uh, an index of the top 20 crypto assets. We'll also uh, Eureka Hedge, which is uh, one of the providers of, of different uh, indices. They have a, a crypto fund uh, fund index that, that we like to compare ourselves to as well. Sure. And you've recently started a new fund as well, Henrik. Do you want to just give us an uh, overview of what that fund does? Yeah, that's, that's right. So 
so we started a, a market neutral fund as well. So, or um, flagship fund, if you like, the Apollo Capital Fund is uh, is this diversified exposure to the crypto market. And uh, last year we launched the Apollo Capital Opportunities Fund, which is the market neutral exposure to the crypto market. So very different risk return profile in that fund. That fund targets uh, annual return after fees uh, of 30 to 50%. So I, I think a very excellent potential return there without taking a price exposure to crypto assets. So, you know, one day, you know, um, we might enter, enter another um, uh, bear market in, in crypto markets, or maybe you have an investor that are not... Uh, uh, so so cannot... market neutral, you mean like a beta or of zero? So That's essentially, right. it's got no market exposure going up or down. It's just right. so positions. We use kind of the inefficiencies in the crypto market to, to get sure. those kind of returns. Um, which is that like very high. lending secured by crypto or lending secured by currency? Is that part of it? Uh, yeah, so we use um, kind of we are very active in the DeFi market. Uh, we provide liquidity to something called decentralized exchanges, for example, where you can earn a very high yield for doing that. So that's certainly a major part of the of that portfolio currently. But there are other strategies as well in our toolbox, if you like. And how do these new coins? Probably should have asked um, earlier. But how do these new coins get created? Is it like an IPO, or is it a you know a group of people in a room coming together about a certain amount of coins and a certain amount of tech, and it should look like this? Or how do, how do they get conceived? Yeah, a group of developers really all around the world that are working on on creating new projects in the, in this space. Um, you know, three years ago we heard about ICOs. Those were new coins that were sold to the retail market. That market was uh, more or less um, shut down by the regulators. Um, so these days, that early stage funding is done through something called a SAFT, which is a piece of security sold to accredited or wholesale investors or institutional investors like ourselves, um, where we can get access to this early stage uh, deals, kind of seed investing. The path to liquidity is very fast in those early stage deals. So the path to liquidity might be months or a couple of years. So very different from traditional VC investing. And that's a part you invest in them, Henrik? That's right. So we're actually doing that uh, as well. So we invest in in both early stage deals and, and secondary markets. Yeah. Great. I think that that's a, a really uh, kind of underappreciated or maybe not spoken about enough about the fund uh, for Apollo is, you know, Henrik probably doesn't want to toot his own horn, but just like VC funds um, where let's say a new project team they see credibility and a network effect by the people that they get to invest into their project. Mm. And Henrik is, is, is one of those people that sought out certainly in this part of the world um, for that credibility, which actually investors in the fund get access to that kind of inside pre-public deal flow. Um, you know, if, if they're, if they're very good projects, you know, you and I on our, on our own, we couldn't get access to that. Right. So um, Henrik's deal flow goes into the fund. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So we, we invest actively in, uh, we've done three or four deals, to, uh, I think, year to date. So we're quite selective. We look at a lot of deals. Um, 
but we are very focused on kind of our area investments uh, that the DeFi focused uh, the team behind uh, these new projects um, and, and so, so on. So we're being quite selective. The, the risk is higher the earlier you invest, but the potential returns are really great as well. And what kind of um, total capital do you think you can run, Henrik, or does it change change by the day as the as the market grows? Is your fund capped at say 100 million, or you can you could potentially, as the market grows, you could get to a couple of billion dollars and still run it efficiently? Yeah, I, I, I think the uh, the main fund, if you can call it that, can can uh, probably handle a billion dollar uh, in today's market. It's a very liquid market. Yep. The new fund, the opportunities fund, the market neutral fund that we talked uh, briefly about, uh, the, the cap there will be much lower. Uh, so sure. that might be capped at 50 to 100 million. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, I think it's nearly time up for us, but it's definitely a theme that we'll keep on uh, at our investment committee and one that we'll uh, watch very closely and probably more knowledge is required by me anyway, <laughs> but uh, really appreciate talking to both you, Michael, and you, Hendrik, um, giving up your time and uh, and going through your fund and the opportunity set and a big theme that's going to play out over the next 10 years and hopefully can welcome you back soon to talk a little bit deeper. So thanks very much on behalf of Drew and I and, and the team at Wattle Partners. Thank Thanks. you. Great, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Perfect. Perfect. It's pretty broad, broad to get in 40 minutes, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot of topics. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot, yeah. Hopefully we kept it at the right sort of level. That was... Do you think, I mean, like, who 